All right, this morning we are finishing up the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, it is estimated that the, the great pyramids of Egypt were constructed between 2700, 2200 BC, around that point of time, burial places uh, for the pharaohs when they were deceased. And then the pyramids were built both to honor them, but also as a place that was loaded with goods and treasures and gold and all sorts of things with the idea that it would help speed the way along for the Pharaoh into whatever that afterlife looked like, that they would be well equipped for whatever that would bring. Uh, the, the pyramids, we know, were mostly looted within a few centuries after they were built, which reminds us again, not only of the, the overriding theme of you can't take it with you when you go, but the, the, the whole sin of man's greed um, that, that not only drives one to load up a burial place to potentially have more stuff, but then drives others to go into that burial place and to steal that stuff. Man loves possessions. Jesus warned about that, the, the, the love of money being a, a root of all sorts of evil, and just the overwhelming temptation that wealth brings, that, that desire for more stuff can bring. Jesus Speaks to it in Matthew 6, 19, when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That warning from Jesus makes this closing exhortation that we're reading this morning in 2 Peter, I think, all the more profound and challenging. A central theme that we have seen in 2 Peter has been the day of the Lord. It is this future event that has been shown to us as being marked by being sudden, dramatic coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, him returning, and in doing so, bringing judgment and wrath upon the world, bringing deliverance for his own people, and then also bringing the establishment of his kingdom. And so far, we've seen Peter very focused on the existing heavens and earth in terms of where we are now, what happens to that. We've been reading that in 2 Peter in terms of what to expect at the day of the Lord. But today, as we read on, he's going to emphasize another truth, and that is something that believers are to be looking forward to, that the day of the Lord is not simply judgment on the earth, but that there is also this hope, and I think it also has a bearing on on our amassing of stuff and the things that we treasure. So 2 Peter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 11 and just read down through verse 13 to get us started. 2 Peter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The day of the Lord that we've read about previously, that we've been seeing both back in 2 Thessalonians and now in 2 Peter, what we've seen so far is it is a day of destruction. It is God bringing judgment on mankind and it is his wrath falling on a and a sinful, rebellious world. Second Peter 3, 7 says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then a little bit after that in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The, the, the universe as we see it, as we know it, is temporary. Ro Romans chapter eight gives that picture that the creation around us, not so much focused on humanity at this point, but the creation around us is groaning under the weight of the curse of sin, that, that the, the fallout of Adam and Eve's sin not only impacts all of mankind as descendants of Adam and Eve, but also puts creation into this bondage in which it is now decaying. It is decaying and it is awaiting a day when there will be redemption, when it will be made new. And, and, and Peter now sets out in front of us this hope that there will be a new creation in verse 13. He's, he has us looking forward to not only know that this is a day of judgment, but that this is a day of newness, of restoration, of that which is being made new. And, and, and his teaching is, is not simply a novel idea of his or Paul's, since we read earlier in 2 Thessalonians. This goes all the way back. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus Christ in Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. The heaven above us and the earth that, that we dwell on is destined to be brought to an end and made new. Two ways to look at that, that, that I think scripture would, would, would say both are um, not inappropriate ways of looking at it, either annihilation or transformation, either the idea that it is all simply destroyed and then completely made new, or that it is all sort of purified by fire, and, and in the process there is this transformation into new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Jesus also speaks of the passing away of the heaven and the earth in Mark 13, 31. Peter certainly seems to speak at least in that direction of it all being destroyed and then the old replaced with new. But the details of how exactly that looks, whether it's similar in fact to Genesis chapter one and it simply happens by the, the word of God out of nothing or if there's transformation of the elements from the old that are made new, I don't think that's Peter's concern at this point. His main point is to emphasize to us this incredible contrast between that which is old and decaying and under the, the condemnation of sin and it is moving toward its own demise. It is marked by evil and that which is new, that which is no longer decaying, no longer subject to corruption, no longer subject to the effects of sin. If Peter had simply stopped after verse 10 or even again after verse 12 when he speaks of, of the heavenly bodies melting, we would have clearly seen the justice of God in terms of his wrath. We would see God doing what, what God can and should do in terms of judging evil. But we might also be thinking, what, what else? What, what, what is there to come beyond that, beyond that, that great judgment of sin? What is to come of that which prior to sin was described as very good? You and I know that we still observe beauty even in a fallen creation. We still see things that, that just capture our attention, that we marvel at. We still have our breath taken away by a, a sunrise or a field of flowers or some mountaintop or, or just some view that is just so stunning that we are amazed at. And if, if all of that simply went away and we just stopped at that point, we might ask, well, what about this creation? What about, is, is there just nothing? 
after this. And Peter says, no, oh no, there is more. And there is not only more, but it is, it is far better than what you experience now. It is so far better. And what will make this, this new heavens and new earth more fantastic will not just be in beauty or shape or anything observable, but it will be, as he says in verse 13, because the new will be a dwelling place for righteousness. In the new, righteousness will dominate this creation. That which is right, that which is sinless. The old is fallen and corrupted by sin and is decaying. False teachers have led many astray. The, the prince of this world has, has roamed and enticed millions into evil and sin and unrighteousness abounds everywhere. But the new earth will be very different. Most wonderful of all is that in the new earth, it ultimately fulfills what was God's design when he first creates the, the Garden of Eden. And that is for full and perfect communion between he and man. Sinless communion. Us able to experience God in his beauty and majesty and glory and sinlessness and also to not yielding to sin ourselves. All of that will finally be realized. And that's, that's what Peter sets before us in, in this final exhortation, it is a vision of the day of the Lord that is not only, and, and rightfully so, God's righteous judgment of evil, but a vision that is to give us just a glimpse of the glory that awaits God's people in a place where God dwells and communes with his people and there is no longer sin as a barrier between us. Everything that is bound up in sin's curse will be banished from this. The violence, the catastrophes, the cancer, the pain, the corruption, the abuse, all that is a reflection of a fallen and broken world will be banished from this place where righteousness dwells. That's what God has revealed through Peter. And that's what he's given to you and I as his people to look forward to, to anticipate, and, and more importantly, to live for. It's not simply to give us hope for the future. It's not simply to, to, to let us know that God's justice will be uh, poured out rightfully so and that, that it will be met. But the purpose, Peter writes, is to stimulate you and I to action now. That's why chapter 3, verse 11 says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be? That's really the, the issue here is how it affects us now. That's the question. We're coming to the end of this series that has been 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter living in the last days while waiting for Jesus. We've seen in 2 Thessalonians where Paul says now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered to him. And then we've read Peter talking about the day of the Lord coming like a thief. All of it is to get us to this. Now What? Now that we, we understand the coming of God's righteous judgment and wrath and this dwelling place of righteousness that will await his people, what kind of people ought we to be? And I'm going to suggest to you six answers that Peter gives in this passage. Holy, godly, waiting, urging, steady, and growing. Starting with verse 11, where he says, our lives should be marked by holiness and godliness, as since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I'll suggest to you repeatedly throughout this that a lot of the things that we see in this closing exhortation 
echo back to chapter one, to the beginning of Peter's letter, that themes that he introduced there are now the things that he's circling back to here at the end of his letter, because in chapter one, verse three, he had said, by his power, God has equipped you to live in godliness. God has equipped you for godliness, equipped you to live like Christ. In chapter one, verse four, he says, you are a partaker of the very nature of Christ. As believers, we are joined to Christ, and so we participate in his nature. So you are no longer in bondage to the, the sinful corruption of the world. And, and so he set that out in chapter one, and then the next thing he says is, therefore, cultivate godliness. In light of him empowering you, him bringing you into his nature, therefore, live differently, cultivate godliness. So here, when you get to chapter three, verse 11, when he says, in lives in holiness and godliness, that word for holy, it's two words in the Greek. It actually speaks to holy conduct, in, in holy conduct and godliness. In your behavior, in your, in your thoughts, in your actions, Peter, Peter's emphasizing the fact that this is what should govern us, holiness and godliness. He uses plural for both of those, holiness and godliness, almost as if to speak of a fullness of these things. Our, our, all of our conduct, in all godliness, in all that we do, these should mark us. And, and I think the way he uses these two, when, when he kind of pairs them up, holiness and godliness, it's almost like opposite sides of the same coin. On the one side, holiness really emphasizes different from. We are not to be like the world around us. Holiness expresses this idea of being distinctive apart from this, while godliness says you should be like this, not like this, but rather like this, not, not joined to the world, but rather being like Christ and joined to Christ. And so God is teaching us how the last days should, the knowledge of the return of Christ should change our very lifestyle. Holiness is saying, set apart from the world. It's, it's, it's not blending in, it's not being like, there's something that's distinctive. And so when it comes to the, the focus on pleasure or treasures or just living for the moment, just trying to get all I can right now, accomplishment, success, all of the things that, that the, the world would say are sort of governing philosophies and, and, and impelling desires, those are the things we're to be different from. That, that, that holiness is to be distinct from that. In fact, verse 14, he elaborates on this when he says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that is waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Verse 13 says the, 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 the new heavens, the new earth will be a dwelling place of righteousness. There, there will be no sin there. And now Peter says that, that this this righteousness that, that, that the new, new heavens and new earth will be, this is what you are waiting for. Therefore, you should be seeking now, even in this life, to not be marred by the stain of sin. You should be living differently now as you prepare for then. If you think back to chapter two, when Peter is um, giving his scathing rebuke of the false teachers. And he describes them as dogs who return to their vomit and the, the, the sow in the mire and just eyes full of greed and adultery and, and pursuing sensual passions over everything. Peter also in chapter two called them blots and blemishes who revel in their deceptions. Those who are attached to the world who are not separating themselves in any way from the world, who simply just embrace the world and worldly desires and pleasures 
ultimately Peter describes as becoming stained by their sin. That's why he says here, the believer is to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. To, to be diligent means to work at. It, it, it is to take an, uh, make an effort. And the point being, you and I have to work at avoiding the stain of sin. The, the, the world is constantly, as it were, just sort of flooding us with sin and sinful temptation and sinful desires and, and things for our eyes to lust after and for our hearts to chase after. And, and so to avoid the stain of sin, actually something we must be diligent at. We must be guarding our hearts against and, and, and not being drawn into sin's grasp, putting to death the desires of the flesh. Holiness speaks of what we are to be separate from, godliness of what we are to conform to. And so by our participation in the nature of Christ, the fact that we are joined to him, we are to be becoming more like Jesus. And so think of it this way. When people see us, they should not only see this sort of distinctive of being different from, separate from, not reacting the same as, not longing for the same things, not lusting after these things, but they should then also see that what we really love, what we want to, how we want to serve, um, who it is that we are passionate for, where we find our treasure, um, what it is that just excites us, there they should be seeing Jesus Christ as the focal point. If, if you ask someone who knows you well, what am I passionate about? They may list a sports team, they may list some activity, some hobby, some reading, movie, something. But somewhere in there, high on that list should be Jesus Christ. <laughs> that, that I am passionate for Jesus Christ. And is that being communicated? Because that's the, the difference in the holiness and godliness. It's being distinctive and it is pursuing Christ's likeness in such a way that, that people see that passion for him. So let me, let me read on. That's holiness and godliness. Then verse 11, I'll just reread that again just to get us into verse 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Here's the third one, is we are to be waiting. Waiting, looking forward to. Think back, those of you who are old enough with me, think back to the days before smartphones and, and apps and, and, and ways of tracking where people were so that this time of year when Aunt Sue and Uncle Bill are coming over for Thanksgiving dinner or they're coming by for Christmas. Do you remember that there were actually days when you didn't actually have an estimated time of arrival, when you couldn't find them on an app and say, oh look, they're right down the highway. Or, or they couldn't say, hey, we are now 32 minutes away, our estimated arrival is. Remember that? I remember that as a kid, and part of that was an eagerness to be looking out the window and waiting, that, that front living room window. Spent a lot of time around this time of year waiting for those relatives to arrive, looking forward to. That's what he's describing here. That word in verse 12 is the idea of looking to or looking for. He's saying the believer's posture should not be theologically, I understand that Jesus is returning and that will happen someday at a day when we cannot expect, done. No, it, it should be an eager anticipation that Jesus Christ is coming back. And I'm, I'm looking forward, I'm waiting for that, because when he does, he will bring new heavens and a new earth and, and righteousness will dwell. That should be what we are eagerly waiting for. How much, of, how much 
of life is spent waiting. From the time you are a kid, when you are waiting for a driver's license, graduation, to maybe you're a young adult in college and you're waiting for the career, uh, perhaps the spouse, to you're now a little older and you're looking forward to that vacation that's on the calendar or you're looking forward to something uh, in your kids' lives or grandkids' lives. We're always waiting. There's always something on the calendar. And, and, and Peter is urging here a kind of anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ that doesn't merely tuck it away as something that says, well, that'll happen someday. But it's I'm looking forward to that. I, I am eager for my Savior to come and to deliver me. In Matthew 24, Jesus makes it clear that only God the Father knows the day and the time of when that will happen. But Jesus also commanded this sense of being expectant. Matthew 24, 42, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. In other words, be, be thinking about his return so that your life in that moment when he comes is found faithful, that you are, you are awaiting him, you are seeking to glorify him, you are living for him. 2 Peter 3.12 then goes on and it says something else that we probably don't expect. Waiting is one, waiting for Jesus, but then it says hastening the coming of the day of God. Hastening is the idea of hurrying something up. Hastening is what you do with the family member who is perpetually the last one ready when you're going someplace. You're hastening them. Move along. Hurry up. I, I love it. It's happened in first service too. I see couples immediately, they look at each other with the knowing look of who the hastener is and who the slowpoke is who's being hastened in the process. That's what he describes here for us when he says waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, which is really interesting because I, I, I may be able to make a difference in my home when I say, hurry up, we gotta get going. They may actually go a little faster, but I'm not gonna be able to do that with God. Matthew 24, 36 says, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And, and so hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, Peter cannot mean Therefore, that God's timetable is somehow flexible or that God is somehow on pause and he's waiting to be urged to move us toward the day of the Lord or waiting for us to do something. It doesn't seem to be the case if that indeed is fixed by him. So what does hastening the coming of the day of God mean? A couple of hints I think we get from elsewhere in the New Testament, going back first to Jesus praying during the Sermon on the Mount when he teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter six, one of the things he says to pray for is your kingdom come, your will be done. Again, the, the, the reality is I know that God has fixed a time when his kingdom will come. So I'm not actually trying to advance that time. And yet Jesus says, that's how I ought to pray. I ought to pray with this eager desire for that day, with this, this heart that, that is looking forward to it and wanting it to come. And so similarly, Peter, when he is preaching in Acts 3, Peter who gives us this word hastening in, in 2 Peter 3, is preaching in Acts 3 verse 19 and says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Interesting again that Peter connects the urging for people to repent and turn from sin and turn toward Christ with the coming of times of refreshing from the Lord's presence, but also with the sending of the Christ. Repent so that the sending of the Christ might come. 
God is sovereign. Acts 17, 31 says God has fixed a time, has appointed a time, if you will, when he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. So that has been fixed. But I would submit to you that God's sovereignty does not simply rule over the outcomes. He's not simply sovereign over the ends, but also he's sovereign over the means to the ends. He's sovereign over the process prior to the coming of Christ, if you want to put it in those terms. God sees then, therefore, that the the repenting that Peter's talking about in Acts 3, and then the holiness and the longing and the prayers and desires of his people, all of that is also part of God's plan over which he is sovereign. And so Peter is really reinforcing the fact that our obedience, our longing, our cultivating of godliness, our our living differently and longing for the return of Jesus Christ, all matter. This is not a place where we go, well, God's sovereign, Jesus is coming back, I go on with life. None of those things matter. No, actually he's saying that even in God's sovereignty, somehow God has deemed that we in the process by our praying and our longing and our our, our being changed are also helping to hasten that day, are also helping to bring about what God is sovereign over. So in a way that we can't fully measure or completely understand, our ministry of the gospel to people who are lost, are living out the gospel in our lives, are all part of what God has ordained to bring about the return of Jesus Christ. And so hastening is meaningful. It is something that we are still called to because there's this expectancy that, that is yielding fruit. Let me read on, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Okay, we've already looked at verse 14, how that speaks to not being marred by spot or blemish and pursuing holiness. Then verses 15 and 16. seems to take a brief detour in, in the sense of saying, As I have taught you, what what you might perceive as a delay in God's plan, which is not a delay in God's plan, but the the, the time between his first coming and second coming is a marker of God's patience. It is showing God waiting for those to be saved, for for those to turn and to repent. And he says, what, what, what he's pointing out here is, this idea that I've taught you is not new again. Paul taught the same thing. You find the same thing in Paul's letters. And, and by remarking this way, Peter's giving us a glimpse into a little bit of understanding in the first century of Scripture, the fact that the the New Testament letters are already spreading, Paul's letters have already spread around, and and people are aware of them such that Peter can attribute to them. He can say, you know those letters, you've, you've read these from Paul, and what I'm saying is the same thing Paul has said. But in appealing to Paul's letters, he also makes an interesting comment. Peter points out that some of what Paul's written takes some very careful study. Here's Peter sort of helping us. Beloved, I know that you've labored through that letter to the Romans and there are questions you might have and it's not the easiest of letters. That's the way my brother Paul, that's the way he can write. Some of it's a little hard to understand. But, he says, you be diligent with that. 
you, you be diligent with that word because what's happened is some who are ignorant and unstable have not been diligent with his word and they have twisted the whole meaning of what Paul has written so that it now becomes something unrecognizable. It's not truth anymore. It's not God's truth. It's just somebody's ideas. And so perhaps with the help of false teachers, they are being drawn toward their own destruction. So an interesting warning from, from Peter there in, in response to the New Testament letters and the need for study. But let me go on then, 17 and 18, and here's where we'll get the last two. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. What kind of people are we to be? How are we called to live? How should we be different? We are to be holy and godly, and waiting, and hastening, or, or urging toward that day. Fifth, we are to be steady. Here again, echoing back to the opening of his letter in chapter 1, verse 12, he said, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. That word for established in chapter 1, verse 12, is the, a form of the same word he's using here in chapter 3, verse 17, when he speaks about being steady, not, not being moved, not being taken out of what you are established in. And, and, and so what he's urging here is his readers against losing stability, but rather being steadfast. So being anchored in truth, being unmoved by the circumstances that, 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 that we face in any given day, uh, but not being caused to stumble by circumstances, not being deceived by false teachers. All of those things are critically important for Christ's followers. We, we're to be steady. We're, we're to be stable in his truth. God's word, is his truth, his spirit ministers his truth to us to give us illumination, understanding, and application. And, and the community of believers is also there to help us to understand that truth and, and to walk in that truth and not be carried away and lose your stability. He had just said in verse 16, he spoke about those who are ignorant and unstable. And so what he's saying here is don't, don't fall in with them. Don't follow those who mishandle the scriptures in such a way that they actually twist what the scriptures say to, to get them to say what they want. They, they've taken Paul's letters and they've turned them into some kind of license for sin. He says, don't do that. Don't lose your stability. Continue to, to, to hold fast to his truth. Know it and be on guard for error. It really is practicing discernment. It, it, it is growing both in the knowledge of the truth, but then being on guard for that which would deceive, that which would speak contrary to his truth. Verse 17, take care that you are not carried away with error. So he's saying, heed this warning. There are those who will try to teach you error, who will try to lure you into sinful behavior, who will try to deceive you in some way, avoid them. If, if you are to remain steadfast, you must be alert for those things that would seek to deceive you away from the truths of what you believe. Hebrews 13, seven says this, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The writer of Hebrews is using a positive example there. He's saying, if you, if you are being ministered to by faithful shepherds who not just teach sound doctrine, but who then live it out, 
then imitate them. And, and what he says there is watch their lives. That's, that's the ultimate command in Hebrews 13, 7. To remember your leaders is to, to be attentive to, consider the outcome of their way of life. The same applies if we're to be discerning that not only as you listen to me on, on Sunday morning, but as you listen to that religious podcast during the week or you listen to another sermon during the week, one of the things that Scripture calls us to be is Bereans, people who diligently go back and say, does Scripture actually say this? Is what the preacher claimed. Does that seem accurate with the text of Scripture? But coupled with that is consider the outcome of their lives. Those who, who are motivating, who are enticing, who are um, just holding out what seems like some powerful new form of teaching that comes under the guise of Christianity, one of the things we're called to do is consider the outcome of their lives. What drives them? What are they passionate for? What seems to be the motivating factor in their lives? Is the gospel central to what they do, or is there some other external sort of influence, some other kind of treasure that they're pursuing? Look at their lives, watch them, and see what place Jesus and the gospel have in them. Be on guard. And all this flows right into the, the last exhortation, finally in verse 18, to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not enough to simply avoid. We must be growing in truth. Again, if you go back to the opening of this letter, grace was prominent. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we open the letter with chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then verse 3, his divine power has granted to you all things for life and godliness. That's his grace. His power has granted that to you. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Grace is behind all of this, right? It is God's unmerited favor being shown to us, being given to us, being bestowed on us. It begins with the faith that saved us being an act of God's grace to, to turn our hearts, to make them new and to bring them to salvation. And then he continues to pour out everything we need throughout our lives for life and godliness. It's all of his grace. It's this generous gift that is the starting point of your relationship to Christ and is the sustainment of your entire life with Christ. It is his grace. So he says, grow in grace. So the simple question might be, well, how do I grow in grace? And, and there's probably a bunch of different answers to this. I'm going to give you one this morning, and it's from John Bunyan, the, the 18th century Puritan preacher. And Bunyan said this, it is profitable for Christians to be often calling to mind the very beginning of grace with their souls. Remember the former days. Let me repeat it. It is profitable for Christians to be often calling to mind the very beginning of grace with their souls. Remember the former days. Bunyan's call in, in wanting to help his readers better understand grace and grow in it was start here. Think back to who you were when God first bestowed his grace on you in salvation. Think about your life. Think about what you were pursuing, what you were desiring, what you were living for, what your life was like. Think about the, what measure of peace you had in terms of the potential of facing death. Think about all of these things, where you were at that place when grace was first bestowed upon you. None of us, none of us came to God on our merit. None of us had a life that we could present to him. We were all sinful rebels who were defying him, either very overtly by sinful lives or, or, or maybe less overtly and just ignoring him and just doing our own thing. 
but it was God's grace that came to us and moved us and changed us so that we were now drawn to Christ and to the gospel. And so one way we grow in grace is to remember the former days. It is to go back and remember how simply unworthy we are of this kingdom of righteousness. And yet God, by his grace, changed you. And now stop and reflect on what his grace has done in your life. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you should be able to look and see some difference in how you respond to criticism, how you respond to situations that once would just raise your anger, how you respond to temptations. I'm not suggesting here that you've you've now, you've mastered all of these, but you can see growth. You can see where God's grace has changed your appetite for the world and your appetite for Christ. And that's growing in grace. We grow in grace when we humbly meditate on what his grace has already done in our lives. Last thing Peter says is to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And again, Echoing back to the beginning of the letter, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? Through the knowledge of him who called us. And so he started the letter saying, know Christ, you gotta know who he is, you gotta know him better, and here he is at the very end, and he's saying, I am praying that you would grow in the knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ. His point being, we never stop learning about Jesus. We never know enough about Jesus that we graduate from Jesus class. We are constantly learning Jesus. We are constantly coming to know him better. We're constantly learning what it is to depend on him more and growing in his knowledge. How hungry are you to know Jesus? Does your day reflect that appetite to want to know him better? Does your reading intake, does your meditation on what he teaches, how, how are you striving to be more like him? Because you remember, the, the, the whole point of, of what Peter's been saying to us this morning in chapter three, the whole thing that he said, I, I want to compel you, I want to, I want to remind you, I want to teach you, is all hinged on what? Jesus is coming back. It, all of the motivation for everything that he's just given us is to say, Jesus is returning and you will see him and you will be with him in this dwelling place of righteousness. And when that day comes, then all of the, all of the treasures and all of the stuff and all of the things that, that seem to just so fully occupy our days and wear us out and can so easily entangle us, we will leave it all behind. In that day, all the treasure that right now seems so important will be as worthless as the treasure that they stuffed into those pyramids to supposedly follow the Pharaoh. It will be as worthless to us as it was to those dead Pharaohs. All of that treasure, he says, will not be our, it it, it won't go with us. We are going to a dwelling place that is marked by righteousness. And so our living today should be with that in mind. Preparing for living in a kingdom of righteousness, living for Christ and growing more and more like him. For the believer in Christ, life today is preparation for life to come. I'll finish with just this. When we first started Second Peter, when we were in chapter one, one of the passages we, we, we read about him granting us everything for life and godliness. And then verse four said this, by which 
He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You may remember when we went through chapter one, that we got to verse four, as I said to you then, Peter didn't then say, here's the promises that I have in mind. We could, we could easily fill this in. It, it, it doesn't take Peter having to explain it to us. We, we certainly could think about the promise of him being with us forever, uh, the promise of him sending his spirit as a comforter and a counselor, um, the, the, the giving of his word, um, the promise of eternal life, all of the, the, the great promises. Uh, even though he didn't list them there, I think, as we end today, I think it's fair to say that with certainty we know one of those very great and precious promises, and it is that Jesus is returning. And, and, and what Peter has wanted us to grasp from that is that because Jesus is returning, that promise should be drawing you more and more into the likeness of Christ and further and further away from the world that surrounds you. You're becoming more like him and less like this because Jesus is returning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the assurance of your return. We thank you for your coming in flesh. We thank you that you stripped off all of the, the benefits and pleasures and treasures of, of heaven, all the joys, and set that aside so that you might humble yourself to come as a man and to give yourself on the cross and dying there to die in the place of sinners so that any here this morning, any listening online who, who look toward the future, toward death, toward whatever might come with any uncertainty can find in Christ the assurance that they can stand before a righteous judge, declared righteous by virtue of Jesus Christ. It is by his death and resurrection that there is hope. And so I pray that you might draw any who are apart from you, that you might draw them to see Jesus Christ alone as Savior and to turn from the world and sin and to trust in him. Lord, would you be at work in the hearts of me and my brothers and sisters, that you might be cultivating within us just a greater sense of expectation of your return, that we would be like those who are alert and ready and eager to see our Savior. And thank you, thank you that all of this comes with the hope that one day we will dwell in a place of righteousness and all that we have come to know that is tied in with sin, our own struggles and battles with temptation and sin, and then the fallenness of the world around us will all be banished. We'll all be caught up in that destruction of the heavens and the earth. Lord, thank you that in that place that is to come, we will see you and know you and experience perfection in every way with great joy forevermore. It's in your name we pray. Amen.